0: Hey friend, welcome to the Morally Straight Podcast. This is a show where we talk to the LGBTQ activists and allies fighting for a more inclusive future in the Boy Scouts of America. I'm your host, Mike Desocio. I'm an independent journalist and Eagle Scout. In today's episode, I talked to Cheryl Catton. She's a lifelong professional scouter who used her position in the organization to push for queer and especially trans rights. I'm really excited for this conversation, so thanks for listening and let's jump in. Hi, Cheryl. Thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Hi, Mike. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so happy to help.
0: Yeah, I, I know you're a friend of the newsletter, so to speak, and so it's great to have you on the other end and to feature you. Um, every
1: week, every Friday.
0: I love it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So. I know you've spent you know, basically your whole life in scouting and I always like to know how people first got involved and kind of what made you stick with it.
1: Um, I got involved in 1976. So, um, you know, in scouting terms, like I was recruited during the boy power thing, mm-hmm. like it's kind of fun. Um, and, so, but, you know, um, loved every minute of it as a Cub Scout, loved every minute as a Boy Scout as I um, loved all my leaders, all my friends in scouts, and I'm still connected to a whole bunch of them. So it just meant so so much to me as a kid in the program. And then when I started to work at summer camp, um, which I did for a lot, a lot, a lot of summers, um, immediately, like my third day as a CIT, I remember saying to my tent mate and my best friend, I'm gonna find a way to do this for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm.
0: And you did. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, sounds like you've had the really kind of quintessential scouting experience. Um, I'm curious, how old were you when you first started kind of exploring your gender identity and how did that impact your experience in scouting?
1: Um, yeah, I had um, memories of that that go back pretty far. Like first grade is my first, like really sort of concrete memory. And then other people in my family tell me about other little incidents here and there. But my presentation was always very boy. Um, and then at age 11 ish, again, I'm not really exactly sure, but somewhere around then, um, it became very clear to me that, um, I had this compulsion, this thing inside me that said, I want to be a girl. And I did not know where it came from and I did not understand it. Mm. Um, and, I obviously was old enough to know that it wasn't something that I was going to share easily. Mm -hmm. So I, um, leaned into my male identity, um, for 99.9% of the time when I was that age, but I would find little opportunities to explore and to daydream and to figure out, um, the daydreams eventually became plans. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Then I would start to figure out how I was going to live, um, a fuller life in my female identity, which by the time I get to age 52, it becomes my only identity.
0: Right, right. I mean, back then, did you even have like words to articulate your identity?
1: So it's funny, I used to do, um, <clears throat> I was super curious about where this feeling came from. And as a middle schooler, um, and certainly as a high schooler, I would go to the library and I would look things up all the time and I would just get these little tiny snippets. So um, certainly, you know, words that are no longer used right. um, to describe the community were used back then. And even like in high school is really when the word transgender started to be a word that would show up in those types of books and magazine articles. Mm-hmm. Um And the idea of being trans on a scale was something that I ran into Hmm. around that time, probably like freshman year in high school. Um, And they would describe it in all sorts of ways that are a little bit like, but ultimately one end of the scale is people that feel they need to socially and physically transition. And then on the other end was people that have this sense of dysphoria, but they can manage it without um a a physical change or a Uh, a legal change or a social change mm -hmm. so i remember that scale clear as a bell and feeling like i was not at the very far end but like oh i am like three-fourths of the way down this thing and that is because i'm definitely not in the first three categories there were six Mm -hmm. categories whatever whatever that article was i was like i'm in category five maybe some days i'm only in category four.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm
1: that was yeah. my personal assessment of my own trans identity when i was about 14 years old
0: fascinating okay <laughs> yeah the terminology and, and the concepts have certainly changed a lot um yeah you said you kind of are on that age too is when you decided like you want to figure out a way to spend your whole life in scouting um so how did you first start as a scouting professional
1: um yeah i went to college for outdoor education up in maine um, because I wanted to be a like a full-time camp director and um and I wanted to be a DE. I mean, I mm-hmm. didn't know what that job was, certainly. I had friends at that point who were district executives for, you know, 10 months a year and then two months a year, they'd be the camp director. And I was like, I could figure out that business side, you know, mm-hmm. if I got if I got to work at camp in the summer. And that was sort of my very simple idea of what that job must be like. I knew the fundraising was involved, but I was like, okay, I'll do that. So um, I went to college to get a degree to be a DE. I mean, that was mm-hmm. my intent from the very beginning. Um, and then when I graduated, I grew up in Boston. And when I graduated there uh, and I worked for Boston Council as their summer camp director. And I did other program-centric stuff for Learning for Life way back in the early 90s, late 80s. So okay. I was working for the Boy Scouts sort of as um. It was a program specialist type of thing but they didn't have a de spot at that time and then i had a pretty good boy scout network and greater new york council called up and said we have a spot for you so i started my career in 1993 in new york
0: got it got it um and to fast forward a bit i know by 2010 you became a scout executive back in boston um yeah. yeah i'm curious specifically what was it like being in that kind of a high profile position at a time when lgbtq people as a whole were still than as a matter of policy.
1: Yeah. um, So I had always been that, um, you know, one of those voices that said, this is the wrong policy. And then I would always find jobs, you know, as scouting professionals, you move around, I would find jobs in cities that I knew, um, one, I could be myself. And two, my boss was not going to be overly, you know, enforcing those rules whatever Mm. i still have a lot of boy scout dna in me it's hard to talk about some of that stuff sometimes (laughs) Uh, so i um i really came to terms with a lot of that stuff while i worked in philadelphia for 10 years and philly was of course right in the center of that ongoing discussion so i was the i was um in development back then when that issue really popped in philadelphia so i remember that day and um just i had a twenty five thousand dollar donor call up and demand his money back i had two honorees quit that day this is all before like eight o'clock in the morning like it was this is on the
0: supreme court decision day is that what you're referring to no
1: this is um Terra, the um the building in philadelphia oh right right that part of the story um when essentially Philadelphia in the public's eye flip-flopped, hey, we're gonna let LGBTQ kids be in scouts. And then it was during the national meeting that that news came out. That was a whole thing. And <laughs> okay. then the national meeting was in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, so all the um, senior folks were there. And two days later, the council was forced to flip back um, really against its will. It was just a mess of a story. Gotcha. But anyway, I was I was young. I was in my early 30s at that point, okay. Um, and, and dealing with a lot of that stuff. So I am, I sort of had my baptism by fire in Philadelphia. Eventually, you know, we we have a federal lawsuit with the city of Philadelphia about our building, like all that stuff. Like I I give testimony in that court case. Mm-hmm. Like I am pretty close to front and center on all the. I eventually become the DFS there. So I deal with that all the time, and deal with national mm-hmm. on that all the time by the time I got to Boston, my reputation of being um, pro-change for the BSA, pro-LGBTQ rights um, was well established. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Boston
1: Boston was hiring me knowing that, and the national organization was like, well, you know, Cheryl's going to Boston. We'll see what happens, I guess.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was going to ask, I know you had sort of like a I don't, maybe don't ask, don't tell is the wrong way to refer to the policy, but like you allowed gay leaders- in... that's fair. Right, okay, I... so you had this sort of don't ask, don't tell policy. Did National just kind of tolerate it? I mean, what was that dynamic?
1: Yeah, I mean, there were dozens of councils with a don't ask, don't tell. policy. Right. Philly was one, in Boston was another, New York was another, all places I've worked, um, and dozens of others. Um, so really, at that point, 2010, it had been a decade since the dale decision and things had sort of quieted down and everybody in the organization like those councils that had a don't ask don't tell thing were not making it an issue and the national office was not making it an issue so we sort of had this lull in the storm where it was not an everyday thing and some folks certainly knew and it was you know all that stuff um all this other bumps in the road had sort of settled in until 2012 and then they all came back
0: right everything blew up again (laughs) yeah um so what was it like for you to see these policy changes start to roll out starting in 2013 and going for the next few years after
1: i in a lot of ways that was um some of my i mean i had a great run in boston i loved every single minute of working in that council and we did some great innovative and fun things and really made scouting uh, feel real alive. It was great. And so all those highlights, yay. But then some of my other highlights were being involved um, in conversations around the change. Um, and I was um, I was the chair for the Scout Executives um, Advisory Circle, which is a small group of, um, I, I thought, I'm not even sure if that's really the name of it anymore, or even was, but I was the chair of that when Wayne was the um, chief scout. So he we would meet um, he and I and this group of about 10 other scout executives, and he used it as a touchstone. Well, how's it going out there? And of course, Wayne is going through his own personal journey, which, by the way, is so touching hmm. um, for the three of them, the key three at the time to go through their personal journey. So and I was probably I mean, I don't know, but I was probably one of the people in his orbit that was clearly on the pro change side, and we, our relationship started off pretty feisty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and then it became much, it became really sweet over time. Mm. And I remember him telling me about meeting with um, these twin gay boys in New York and how meaningful that was. It was a really fascinating story. So, like, there were these moments for him where he was on his personal journey and I was like, oh, this is so exciting, this is is gonna happen. And then of course the politics of it, how it rolled out, like I get the politics, like that didn't like, I'm like, yeah, it's gonna have to do this in multiple stages. Um, So 2013 was great. And the fact that they did it in this open dialogue and forced everybody to reflect, I loved all that. I thought it was, good for the organization not that it was Mm -hmm. good for the cause because people shouldn't have their rights debated but it was good for the organization to go through that thought process and come out the other side good right um and then the 2017 decision um at that point there was more than a few folks at the national office that knew that i was trans Mm -hmm. um and that just sort of had slipped out because apparently I have a big mouth and too many people talk um so and I didn't know who knew but Mike Serba called me up um and um and asked me if I would be on a committee to review the policy she said you know hey we're gonna change this and we're gonna change it quick like this is not gonna last a long time we're not gonna go do what we did in 2013 we're just gonna change this fast and I want you personally to be on the committee to help us put together the policies for um, trans kids once we allow trans kids in the program. And I thought I was like, oh, I'm right back where I was with Wayne. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be on this little group and there's going to be a whole group of us and we're going to talk about this. And I'm so glad that they asked me. And that's like, I wonder why he chose me. (laughs) And then when I get to the committee, it's literally me and Steve McGowan. That's the committee.
0: Wow. (laughs) Wow.
1: I, of course, have my perspective, and Steve has his, and Steve writes something. I read, line them, and then, you know, most of my suggestions didn't make the final cut, but that's okay. I was still involved, and I felt good about that, and obviously, I love the final decision. Yay. Right. It allowed me to, you know, feel more comfortable for the next four or five years.
0: I find it still pretty remarkable how quickly the policy for trends people happened in 2017, and I think it... It's almost kind of luck cuz I think had it been 2023 where we are now it would have been maybe more controversial which is hard to even think about right
1: I think you're absolutely right about that and there was this window of time mm-hmm. where the trans experience was um okay, it was it was somewhat normalized you know um Laverne Cox on the cover of Time magazine like right in that window is where Joe, the boy, the trans boy in New Jersey, mm-hmm. where that case pops up or that situation pops up. Um, and, and yeah, it was, let's not, um, the national office, my understanding was, let's not go through this again. Let's not make this a big deal. And I get that from Mike. Let's just do the thing that we know we're gonna end up doing anyway. Let's just do it quick.
0: Right. Oh, love it. Yeah, it happened, so, I think within like 90 days, it was so fast.
1: Like 45, it was really fast. Yeah.
0: Okay, yeah um yeah and so i'm curious you didn't just like immediately start living full-time as cheryl though in 2017 so like what was your journey to deciding to to be cheryl full-time and how did that fit in with your scouting role
1: yeah i would say um i still was of the opinion that i was going to navigate in my bi-gender identity still doing all the work that i love to do for scouts and Um, at that point, my volunteerism for the trans community was pretty high, but not at what turned out to be its actual high point. Um, but I was certainly like giving more and more time to the trans community and getting more involved in that group. Um, that eventually, um, I would say as I lived more and more of my life, I came out to my church somewhere along the way. Um, at that point my one of my two kids knew but my younger did not and um my wife and i talked about it but like let's tell the youngest one who was a senior in high school and she was great and super supportive and wonderful so then i was out at home she told her boyfriend so that he knew like you know mm-hmm. it's like, oh, like everybody knows about this and at that point there were so many folks in scouts that knew because i was just coming out a little bit more a little bit more all the time um, eventually, I mean, I really probably would have gone the rest of my career, but eventually, um, you know, we were in a tough spot with the bankruptcy. We were in, in a tough spot with, um, just, we had a merger in Boston. They made things particularly tough. Um, there was a challenge for me, but a challenge for the organization as well. And some folks got kind of grumpy and mm-hmm. some folks who got grumpy figured it out and threatened me and that was that i mean i got a mm. lot of threats it was a, it was a really rough kind of year and a half yeah and those threats combined with starting to feel like because i was volunteering so much for the trans community i can do this like i can still provide for my family i can i like i can mm-hmm. be me me cheryl and still maintain this so i'm very lucky in the way that i transitioned and that i was able to manage my bi-gender experience for such a long time Mm um it's pretty unusual i guess looking back on it but um that's that those issues at the end of between 2018 and 2021 like those issues sort of percolated that pressure and i was like well time to go
0: i don't you know it was a difficult time. Like you said, there was a lot going on, not to mention well, right. the pandemic. Well, so.
1: I stayed in, right, I stayed in through, through the beginning, the first year of the pandemic, the first yeah. year of the bankruptcy. Uh, and it was really um, <clears throat> the fact that folks, we, we had lots of tough decisions to make and scouting still does. And those folks in leadership that have to make tough decisions, people are going to come after you. And having this as a secret, was not going to be something I was going to be able to navigate if I was going to have people coming at me and having it not as a secret was going to really negatively impact my effectiveness in the job. If I were to transition, even though it was okay for the organization, it mm-hmm. still was not going to be any sort of easy transition at age 50 The transition as a scout executive and be like, okay, starting next week, I want you to call me Cheryl.
0: Yeah, understood, <laughs> understood. So... Now you you have a different job, obviously. Do you still volunteer at all in scouting or do you want to?
1: I do. Um, I help out. I'm still a donor and I still um, don't go to camp as much as I would like. That's just on me, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, I still help out. I still teach a bunch of um, citizenship and society merit badge every once in a while. Mm -hmm. I help out with um, fundraising efforts, the board every once in a while. Um, Yeah, I will eventually... They just hired a new scout executive which i'm super excited for everybody that's still there and i'm super excited for their new leadership so i think they'll do well you know i'll get more i'll get more involved um down the line i do still have folks that really want to do me harm and they're still around so my ability to get too involved is still something i'm not 100 percent comfortable with
0: yeah yeah that makes sense um Cheryl, that's about our time, but it's been a real pleasure learning more about your story, so I appreciate you coming on here today.
1: You're very welcome. Thanks so much. It's a it's a pleasure. It's all mine. It's a joy. I cannot wait for the book.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Morally Straight Podcast. If you want to learn more about this story, you can check out the Morally Straight newsletter over on Substack and subscribe for free to receive new content every Friday. You can also pre-order my book, Morally Straight, on bookshop.org. And of course, if you like the podcast, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app.